Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Margaret of Anjou Biography. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. Uh, and today we are not reviewing Margaret of Anjou, Queen Consort Henry VI, because there's far too much to talk about. So instead, this will be the first of two episodes oh, yeah. uh, on Margaret. So today's episode will be doing her biography, and the next episode we will actually review her. The historian Keith Dockrow has stated that no medieval English queen has been more heavily criticised than Margaret of Anjou. Uh, she's viewed as vengeful, partisan figure who was a major cause of the Wars of the Roses. Oh, I thought I, li- I liked her though. But it was Margaret, rather than Isabella of France, whom Shakespeare infamously described as the she-wolf of France, but worse than wolves of France. Women are soft, mild, pitiful and flexible. Thou, stern, obdurate, flinty, rough remorseless that we're going to do this a lot but if you're describing a king <laughs> mm. they'd all be adjectives in praise of him <laughs> yeah. right? ah, so good well but in shakespeare and for many historians the answer has been bad but if we've learned anything from rex factor all these years it's not to trust shakespeare it's yeah. to listen to us yeah so uh, we're going to look at the real margaret and decide whether or not she deserves her villainous uh, reputation or has she been misrepresented in history i tell you what that's a good mission for us hmm Putting Shakespeare right. It's a very niche version of Quantum Leap. (laughs) (laughs) Putting right what Shakespeare wants but wrong. (laughs) Oh, man. Who would you be in that scenario, though? I'd have to be... I'd be Al. I'd be the hologram. You'd be Sam, wouldn't you? With the Swiss cheese memory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Such a good programme, that. Early years. Margaret of Anjou was born on the 23rd of March, uh, 1430, in the Duchy of Bar in eastern France. Uh, she's the daughter of Isabella, Duchess of Lorraine, and Duke René of Anjou, as well as, wait for it, Duke of Bar, Count of Guise, Maine, and Provence, and claimant to the kingdoms of Jerusalem, Sicily, and Naples. Big player. Well, yes, except that many of these titles are actually more trouble than they're worth. So in 1431, when Margaret was just one year old, her father, René, was captured in battle by the Duke of Burgundy and imprisoned mm. um, on and off for the next five years. Yeah. Uh, so her mother took charge of things in Anjou and ah. uh, led an army to enforce a truce with the Duke of Burgundy. And she even travelled to Naples uh, to Governor's Regent for three years. Brilliant. Who's that? Uh, that's Isabella of Lorraine, who is Duchess of Lorraine in her own right. Oh man, special episode please. Uh, so Margaret isn't able to see much of her parents in their early years with her dad in prison and her mum. Yeah, way. Uh, so instead she's brought up by her paternal grandmother, Yolanda of Aragon, who, who herself had been regent in Anjou for her young sons, as well as helping to restore the uh, disinherited Dauphin to the French throne during oh, the Hundred Years' Wars. Uh, she indeed married the Dauphin to one of Margaret's aunts. Yeah. And uh, was an early supporter of Joan of Arc. Oh my goodness, these people are like the... Middle Ages Avengers. <laughs> this is fantastic. Uh, so Margaret receives a traditional education, was known as la petite creature, with the love of uh, French romances and hunting, but she also, of course, has very formative examples of strong female leadership. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'd like, we need to, I mean, that's an argument to do some French, Frenchness, isn't it? Mm. Uh, Margaret's early years are also spent uh, nearly getting married. <laughs> so when she was three she was linked with the Count oh. of St. Paul whose uh, father was purchasing geese uh, then at five 
she was uh, potentially going to be betrothed to the heir of the Duke of Burgundy as part of her father's ransom. All right. In 1442, Margaret's grandmother, uh, her final act, in fact, was trying to marry her to the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah. Uh, but instead, she ended up being betrothed to a cousin of the Duke of Burgundy until Charles VII of France, not liking the idea of Burgundy and Anjou teaming up, broke up the marriage, but had other, and in fact, rather grander plans for Margaret. Becoming queen! So, after a series of defeats in the Hundred Years' War, England suggests that their king, Henry VI, marry a French princess as part of a uh, peace treaty. Yeah, nice. Uh, Charles VII doesn't like this idea, because the last couple of times that the English kings have married French princesses, they've gone on to claim the French throne. Henry Mark V? Henry Mark V, and previously um, Isabella of France. Okay. So instead, Charles offers a compromise. Rather than one of his daughters, he will offer his niece, Margaret of Anjou. Oh. Hmm. Uh, So the English are so desperate for peace, because it really is going pretty badly for them now, that they accept a rather paltry dowry of 20,000 francs, alongside the dubious gift of uh, René's claims to Mallorca and Menorca. (laughs) And also, because René is so poor, England are going to have to pay the bill of Margaret actually coming to the country. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow, so why 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 have that sorry, why have that at all then? What's in it in it for England? Just a, an end to the war. Peace, basically. But they if this is such a bad match, they could say, You don't even have to give us that. <laughs> yeah, just peace. Just, and then, just stop attacking us, please. Yeah. <laughs> Let yeah. us keep the land. So that is just for face. Like they're willing to take a poor substitute I mean, poor woman. Lesser in status bride. Lesser in status than a French princess, but equally she is still a relative of uh, the French king. So she's not a nobody, and she's the daughter of the Duke of Anjou, so it's not bad. Okay. Uh, so Margaret marries Henry by proxy at Tours in May 1444, uh, so the Earl of Suffolk, who'd negotiated the marriage, stood in Oh yeah. for uh, Henry VI. Yeah. So in proxy means that not everybody's there, i.e. the groom isn't there. Yeah. Now a novel I read suggested that was because they didn't want to show that he was mid-mental health breakdown. Uh, that wouldn't be accurate. Okay. Earl of Suffolk escorts Margaret to uh, Rouen, which is capital of English Normandy, uh, uh, at this point, where she is greeted by the Duke of York. I'd love to go to Rouen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Duke of York gives the various gifts that have been sent ahead by Henry, including a, a magnificent chariot. Oh, right. Uh, uh, unfortunately, Margaret has fallen unwell on her journey, so one of her ladies had to ride proxy in the chariot, just for show, huh? uh, while Suffolk's wife had to take her place at the banquet that night. So, hang on, no one who's getting married is there. Oh, well, she's done that bit, but now she's processing from France to Normandy and then on to England. But she... all the big ceremonies, someone else is just having to pretend to be her. Um, so, not very well, and then, of course, she's got to deal with the English Channel mm. Uh, mm. in winter. And as seems to be tradition for English queens, very bad weather. Yeah, always. Apparently, the, uh, her ship uh, lost both of its masts. Oh, my goodness. How bad was their weather forecasting? They couldn't see a storm as bad enough to break two masts. Two masts, yeah. Because, I mean, there's other factors like the tide that they would have been well aware of. Mm. I don't know. I I, I just think there's some sort of racket going on. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, she does make it safely to England. Um, As they sailed along the English coast, apparently Margaret was serenaded with music from two Genoese galleys that were sailing alongside. (laughs) But uh, apparently the music failed to soothe her. I'm not surprised. I mean, if you're in a storm that's taking off two masts, you say, Get, can someone shut that guy up with a lute? <laughs> so she arrives in Portchester and uh, received a squire with a letter from Henry VI. 
Yeah. So, eager to read it, she leaves the squire on his knees the entire time, not realising that the squire was, in fact, Henry VI. Oh, this, this old game then. <laughs> Indeed. So, in a peak of courtly love, he was so excited, he disguised, uh, disguised himself as a messenger so that he could observe her secretly. Yeah. Oh, good idea. Like, um, it's the shop boss on the shop floor business. Indeed. Um, Margaret was a bit vexed when she found out that it was Henry. Because she hadn't, he left before she realised. So she was like, "Oh well, I wouldn't have kept him on his knees the whole time if I'd realised it was the king." That poor woman. I bet she's going to be uh, told off for this as well. She just come, got off a, a boat that she's been in mortal danger for the past ten hours, and she's been ill for the last two weeks. <laughs> then Henry comes along and plays a practical joke on her. <laughs> God. Uh, thankfully, unlike uh, the Henry VIII and Anne of Cleves misunderstanding in similar circumstances a mm. uh, hundred years later, this doesn't have any negative uh, effect on their relationship. Uh, they're married soon afterwards at uh, Titchfield Abbey in the New Forest, and Henry was reportedly smitten with his new bride. Oh, that's nice. Only a hundred years later, gosh. Oh, yeah. So, on the 30th of May, 1445, Margaret enters London in splendour for her coronation. Mm. The Queen came from the tower in a horse bier, with two steeds decorated all in white damask, powdered with gold, as was the clothing she had on. Her hair was combed down about her shoulders, with a coronal of gold, rich pearls, and precious stones. Nice. Nice, indeed. Looked good. Eight theatrical pageants are laid out for her as she processes through the city, so basically gets to all these points, and then she has to stop and watch a bit of street (laughs) theatre. Yeah. Five of these pageants of the eight present her as an angel of peace, uh, which is unusual because you'd expect more traditionally queenly virtues like fertility or mercy intercession. Oh, right. Okay. So that's showing you after decades of war, all the focus really is about her bringing peace between England and France. Yeah, okay. It's, it's, all, it's so... It's got a political point. It's not just for the funnies. Indeed, alas. <laughs> it's less Jubilee concert, more... Olympic opening ceremony NHS stuff. Yes, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but people are very excited. They've got this yeah. uh, beautiful new queen. Peace is coming with France. Everything's going to be dandy. Yeah, cool. Tainted queenship. Uh, so as you said, Henry VI is 23 years old to Margaret's 15, which um, mm. isn't actually that bad in age gap for no. what we, uh, we sometimes get. Mm. Um, Henry is uh, quite a good-looking young man, five foot nine, decent physique. Mm. Uh, while Margaret is described by the Milanese ambassador as being a most handsome woman, though somewhat dark. <laughs> right. Uh, Henry is a rather docile character, said to have been better suited to being a monk than a queen, uh, than a king. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's given. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, whereas Margaret is a much more decisive character, so perhaps makes quite a good match for Henry. Yeah. So, and they spend a lot of their time together in these yeah. early years. They seem to have got on pretty well. Uh, but unfortunately, Henry is a weak ruler. He'd previously been dominated by his uncles, uh, but now the newly promoted Duke of Suffolk holds supreme. Okay, so she won't like that. Uh, well, actually, she seems to get on, because Suffolk, of course, is the man that's brought her from France oh, right. to England. Yeah, so he's the first man she actually knows yeah. uh, from England. He's sophisticated, well-read, and an accomplished mm-hmm. poet. Mm-hmm. Um, so Suffolk, and also his wife, who is Alice Chaucer, Oh. Granddaughter of Geoffrey. Okay. Uh, and she is Margaret's lady-in-waiting in these early years. So they both play a very important role in Margaret's early political education. So they're kind of quite good friends as couples. Yeah. Henry and Margaret, Suffolk and Alice. Yeah, so it's like uh, the Brad, Pitt, Pitt Jolies and Clooney Amals. Or, hmm. or whatever the... Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, that's good popular culture Thanks. references there. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie no longer together, but nevertheless. Oh. Uh, so everything's very happy at home, but things are not going so well for the country at large. Um, as an only child whose three uncles all died childless, um, or at least legitimate childless, Henry VI desperately needed an heir. Mm. So tongues start to wag when Margaret fails to fall pregnant after several years of marriage. Uh, and worse, a bungled and unpopular attempt to cede the county of Maine uh, by England uh, had led to a resumption of the war with France, leading to the fall of Normandy in 1450. Oh dear. So, yeah. no air, no peace. Many rather question what benefits they've actually got from Margaret yeah. becoming Queen of England. Mm. Mm. Oh dear. 1450 was uh, an early Annus Horribilis for uh, Henry VI. Uh, Suffolk was blamed for the country's woes as the chief minister and the man that negotiated the peace and the marriage yeah. and whatnot. So he was denounced in Parliament and sent into exile, but on his way into exile was beheaded by English pirates for treason. That's appalling. And uh, also that year we have Cade's Rebellion, which sees a mob march on London protesting at corruption in government. Yeah, I read a novel about that. Didn't I? Jack Cade. Yes, Jack Cade. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't know which one it was. Mm. Uh, Henry flees the city, mm. uh, but Margaret remains, and uh, she works with the Lord Chancellor, Cardinal Kemp, to issue a pardon that helped to restore order. So again, not great strong leadership from Henry, but no. Margaret got a bit, more, well. yeah. bit more backbone. Uh, Suffolk's death obviously means that we no longer have a chief minister at court, so there are two men who seek to fill the power vacuum that Suffolk's death has left. Yeah. Richard, Duke of York. Uh-oh. And Edmund Beaufort, second Duke of Somerset. Why do I know his? Because he was rumoured to have had an affair with Catherine of Valois, our previous Queen Consort. York had been replaced as Lieutenant of France by Somerset. So York was furious that Somerset has overseen all of these losses. He's lost Normandy and all of this. And yet, Somerset is the one that gets appointed chief minister and is bestowed with gifts and favours by Henry, whereas York is kept on mm. the sidelines. Yeah, yeah. That's a bit annoying, right? It is indeed. Um, so in 1451, York failed to have himself recognised as heir to the throne by Parliament. Well, that's a bit presumptuous though, isn't it? And he faced off against the Royal Army at Dartford in 1452, demanding Somerset's arrest. But again, ultimately, Henry refuses. Why? Uh, well, because he likes Somerset and he obviously doesn't like York. Oh, right. It's just personality clash. Well, it seems to be a certain amount of that. Um, and the succession is very much a part of the rivalry between them because both men have a claim to the throne. So Somerset, like Henry VI, is descended via John of Gaunt, third son of Edward III, and yeah. thus Lancastrians. Yeah. Whilst the Duke of York is descended from the second and fourth sons of Edward III. He had too many kids, didn't he? <laughs> too, many, too many sons. Yeah. But so York has got, you would say, by primogeniture, a better claim to the throne than Somerset, and arguably a better claim to the throne than Henry himself. But his beef isn't with Henry. No, his beef is with Somerset, but I guess also the fact that Henry isn't giving him the due credit that he deserves as what should be the premier noble in the land. But he, but he just wants... He might go against... I, I know what's happening here, but, but as in I can remember this next <laughs> bit. But at this point, is he thinking it's not the office of the king he's after. It's not Henry per se. Yeah, so I mean, it's a great debating point, of course, the, the motivation of the uh, the Duke of York. But yeah. at this point, if I'm recognised as heir, that will acknowledge my status in the country yeah. rather than I need to be king here. Yeah, 
Yeah, because it, yeah, it's not actually presumptuous because it is, he is next in line, right? He should be. Yeah. But the rules aren't really stated that clearly yet. So there's doubt. Uh, so Henry might think he can set somebody else up instead. Uh, okay, so we just need the rules clarified at this point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, Margaret is traditionally portrayed as being partisan against York uh, in favour of Somerset, but outwardly, at least, she does actually seem to have maintained an air of neutrality. Uh, so in 1453, uh, York and Somerset both received New Year's gifts that were pointedly equal in value from Margaret. Ah, exactly the same. Exactly the same, yeah. Um, and meanwhile, York's wife, Cecily Neville, asks Margaret to intercede with Henry on York's behalf. Mm. to try and restore him to favour. So that indicates that at the very least, Margaret is not seen as being anti-York. Yeah, she, she's a way in. Yeah, and she's still that sort of fairly neutral, queenly figure that can intercede between mm. her husband and his subjects. But more to the point, Margaret has got some good news that might help reduce Henry's suspicion of York and bolster in the entire realm, because after eight years of marriage, she is finally pregnant. Right. But then he's lost his claim. Then he, he'll he want this child dead. Well, no, but if York doesn't really want to be king, he just wants to be acknowledged as a senior person. Yeah. If Margaret has a son and heir, that takes a bit of the pressure off because York's saying, I should be more powerful, no longer means Henry has to say, yes, you're next in line. Yeah. It could be like, oh, well, everything's fine. I've got a son. He's next in line. You just want a bit more power. Okay, then, now that we're established, you're not after the throne because yeah. we know who's next in line yeah. and it's not your rival, it's my son. I'll give you a bit more power. Maybe we don't need to be quite as long yeah. anymore. Yeah, we'll mm. settle everything. Nice. Everything's fine. Yeah. Regency crisis. <sighs> Unfortunately, this good news coincided with the rather bad news of England's final defeat in the Hundred Years' War, in which England loses all of its territory in France except for Calais. Yeah. Henry, fair to say, does not take this news well. A disease and disorder of such a sort overcame the king that he lost his wits and memory for a time, and nearly all his body was uncoordinated and out of control, that he could neither walk nor hold his head upright nor easily move from where he sat. So what is going on here? Is it, is it coincidence that that's uh, uh, co- uh, coincided uh, hmm. with um, the loss of France? Or was it a mental, just a mental health breakdown? Um, well, obviously, well, I mean, it is a mental health yeah. breakdown, so it may well be that this is what Trigger, triggers yeah. it. Um, he does seem perhaps to have been predisposed towards something. Of course, his grandfather on his French side, Charles VI, was Charles mm. the Mad. Mm. So perhaps you know, there's something that's been inherited there. Uh, but basically, Henry VI is completely unresponsive and unable to process anything going on around him. Just comatose. Just completely. Well, it's, but he's conscious. So it's more he's in a sort of catatonic, catatonic state. Catatonic, yeah. Initially, they tried to keep this secret and just carry on governing mm. in his name. But eventually, government has to go into paralysis because he's clearly not there. He can't open parliament. So Somerset is forced to hold a great council where they decide what to do and how to govern the country. Yeah. Um, initially, he doesn't invite the Duke of York. Oh, dear. That's silly. Because he knows, obviously, York's got it in for him. And York is the, really is the top noble yeah but that's just that's almost a declaration of war straight away isn't it well indeed so the other nobles and perhaps margaret of course as we said cecily had interceded with her or asked her to intercede persuade somerset that he really does have to invite the most senior noble in the land yeah you need a a war cabinet and that's all of you and there's no mucking around so york comes along as well and maybe will be hoped that you know with everything that's going on in the spirit of compromise york will come and they'll work together and sort Mm. something out Mm -hmm. york comes along and immediately sends somerset to the tower of london how did he do that? Just with more soldiers? Not sure who can say no, really. Right, yeah. Mm. Now, 
Margaret, you might think, well, she's a royal person, but she is completely unable to influence events at this stage because she's in the final months of her pregnancy. Yeah. So she has to enter confinement, whereby she's completely removed from the affairs of state and barred from uh, having male visitors. That's unhelpful. It is indeed. And not at all helpful to the pregnancy. Uh, No. Um, However, thankfully, it all goes well, and she gives birth on the 13th of October to a healthy boy who is called Edward. Cool. Um, but she still has another month in confinement before her churching ceremony marks her restoration to public life. Mm-hmm. A churching ceremony? Yeah, so it's literally she sort of is brought to church and there's a proper ceremony where she is officially inducted back into the affairs of the world. Um, but they still haven't figured out what to do. Mm. So in February 1454, Regency still undecided, Margaret decides that she will follow the example of her mother and her grandmother and throws her own hat into the ring. Yeah. She desires the whole rule of this land, that she may appoint the Chancellor, Treasurer, Keeper of the Privy Seal, and all other offices of this land, that she may give all the bishoprics of this land and all other benefices that she may have sufficient livelihood assigned to her for the King, the Prince, and herself. I mean, she, I, that's great, isn't it? That They're all there saying, I'm, I'm the biggest fellow, I'm the biggest fellow. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm the Queen here, got the heir, got the King. She's going to have a go as well. That's so cool. Hands up who's had the holy water on their head. Just me? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Um, So sometimes, again, with her reputation, this is seen as an early example of her, you know, avarice and her desire for power. But it makes sense. We said, you've got all these divisions at court, and it's not just York and Somerset. Also in the north of England, the Neville and Percy families are at lockerheads. It's a a unifying thing. So you need a unifying thing. You need a neutral source of royal authority. She's consort of the king, mother of the heir. Yeah. She can have them as her counsellors in a special court. Give them both equal value presents, keep them happy. She does have some support, um, but others seem to have opposed having a female regent. Because it's not something that's really yeah. done in England very much, particularly the fact that she would thus be a French female, <laughs> given the state of conflict between England and France at this point. Yeah. It's not ideal. Yeah. And also, York, probably despite everything, still considers her as Henry's wife too close to Somerset. And also, probably after all these years of being sidelined, he's like, well, I'm not going to miss this opportunity to actually decide what happens now. Yeah. They've both got good points. Hmm. When the Chancellor dies and government really can't do anything anymore, that forces the nobles' hands and they do, in fact, appoint York as Lord Protector. No, I take it back. She's got the best point because uh, (laughs) his is just greed. Greed, but he's the most powerful noble. He's the one, I guess, who can be a protector as, you know, leader of men, etc. He just wants that. He would still be, though. He just wants the. I mean, ideally, title. you could have had one of them as regent and one as protector, and they work together. But uh, that doesn't seem to have been mooted. But Margaret does get a little bit of her own way, so she insists on uh, Richard, the Duke of York, agreeing that he will serve only until either Henry recovers or until Prince Edward comes of age. Yeah. So there's a limit placed on this Good. protectorate, and also Prince Edward is indeed invested as Prince of Wales. Right. So again, that's a recognition of his status. So York is accepting the legitimacy of Henry's son, and he's accepting that there is a time limit on his rule. Yeah. So all seems to go not too badly, York's Mm -hmm. protectorate. And then at Christmas of 1454, after nearly a year and a half, Henry suddenly recovers, as if he's just woken up from a dream. 
so he, he recovers. He's never quite the same. He was never really particularly strong. Yeah. He's always a bit weird and childlike anyway, Henry VI, but he seems to be particularly after this as well. He's never quite fully himself again. Right. But he has woken up. Yeah. All is good. Margaret presents his son to him that he's never met before, obviously. Oh. Um, and Henry held up his hands and thanked God thereof. And Henry basically just tries to pick up where he left off as if he had literally just woken from a dream, as if nothing had changed or happened in the previous 18 months. So that means Somerset out of the Tower of London, restored as chief officer, restored to his offices in France, and Duke of York dismissed from all of his positions back to the sidelines. The problem is that things also have changed. Mm. It's not where we were um, 18 months previously. York has now had a taste of power. Oh, yeah. What's more, the divisions of court have been cemented. So York is now allied with the Neville family. Right. So that's the Earl of Salisbury and his son, the Earl of Warwick. Oh. Warwick, the kingmaker. Yeah, right. And he is not prepared to accept the status quo anymore. He's not prepared to go back to where he was before, particularly because he's got strong allies now and he knows yeah. there is a situation where he has been in charge. Yeah. And he thinks this is never going to get any better. Henry's going to keep on putting this Somerset guy back. Yeah. So, York and his allies launch a surprise attack on the Duke of Somerset in 1455 in the First Battle of St. Albans, in which the Duke of Somerset and the Earl of Northumberland, Henry Percy, are both killed. Henry VI is captured, and York appoints himself as protector for a second time. Because now he does want the title, now he wants to be king. Not necessarily king, but he certainly he wants power now, and he's decided now that he's got to take it into his own hands. Okay. Because he's still, I guess there's still the thing about uh, mucking around with the sanctity of the office and stuff. Is that is that in any way a concern that he's... It is a concern, and you know, the fact that he is, Henry is there on the battlefield and he, is, he actually gets wounded by accident, the royal standard has been attacked in effect. So it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. But York has killed the most, his, his rival, he has taken possession of Henry, and yeah. he is now protector. Okay. And we'll find out what that means for Margaret after a quick break. The Wars of the Roses. So whilst York's second protectorate doesn't actually last very long, it's over by 1456. But nevertheless, he has managed to, engain, uh, managed to gain entrenched positions of power in government with sort of appointing his own candidates to various positions and uh, also for his allies. Um, and Henry basically has been reduced to a puppet king now. So whoever has control of Henry basically is ruling but york is up the stakes he's attacked the royal standard mm. he's killed his fellow nobles and more importantly he's created a new and even more powerful enemy for himself margaret of anjou yeah margaret should just go in and slay him previously we saw margaret seem to be trying to be a bit of neutrality there's no evidence of her being particularly opposed to york but now with him having attacked henry and mm. taken control and killed somerset she now views york as a threat perhaps less to Henry than actually to the succession of her son, Prince Edward. Yeah, so that is yeah. now the focus for Margaret. Now she's got a son, mm. that's what she's got to protect. Uh, so Margaret, at this point, emerges as the leader of the Lancastrian faction at court. Cool. She consolidates her own power base in the Midlands, where she's got various estates. Yeah. So she basically takes Henry to Coventry, and just sets up shop there. Yeah. She takes back control of government, so she dismisses various York people and puts her own people in yeah. place instead. And then the next few years are something of a cold Wars of the Roses. <sighs> so we don't actually have any fighting at this point, but we've got Margaret sort of trying to nullify York and his allies. Meanwhile, the Yorkists, particularly the Earl of Warwick, hitting back with propaganda 
against mm. Margaret. So they say Prince Edward was a changeling or he was conceived in adultery. Margaret apparently is forcing Henry to abdicate or planning to poison him. So it's just doing some uh, sort of like hybrid warfare. Exactly. Mm. Um, but Henry VI does have one last burst of actually being king in him. Okay. So in a final, and some would say farcical, attempt to restore control, Henry calls a great council where the Yorkists nominally agree to pay compensation for St. Albans. Okay. Um, and all the leading players take part in the Love Day Parade of 1458. Oh my God, he, he has taken a leaf straight out of my book. Isn't he? <laughs> He's ba- he is as good as kinging as I would be. <laughs> Look, can we all just get along? Let's have a nice picnic. Yeah, so this involves... Basically, all of the nobles on both sides processing through the streets of London, holding hands with their rivals. Yeah. So, Salisbury holds hands with the third Duke of Somerset, son of the one that was killed. Okay. St. Albans. Warwick holds hands with the Duke of Exeter, whilst at the back, in a very public acknowledgement of her power and status, the Duke of York is holding hands with Margaret of Anjou. Oh, okay, so, and Henry is just... Henry, I think Henry was in front of them, so they okay. were bringing up the rear as, like, the leaders, evidently, yeah, of the yeah. right, okay. two sides. So that was Henry's big plan for peace. Mm. Doesn't work. No. Uh, so in 1459, York and his allies raise an army, prepared to take action, but outnumbered by the Lancastrians, they have to flee into exile. Where was it? York? Uh, well, York raises the allies, but yeah. it's at Ludford Bridge. I okay. can't remember where that is. Um, taking advantage of this, Margaret calls a parliament and then requires all those present to take oaths of loyalty to Henry and then directs them to pass attainders against York, Salisbury and Warwick. So in other words, officially declaring them traitors whose lands and lives are forfeit. Yeah, and not just theirs, but their children's as well, right? That's Mm. being written out of the game. Exactly. That's brilliant, though. What a great... That's exactly what she should do... What, how could that have gone wrong? Well, the problem is none of them are there, so it's all very well to say that, but you've got to actually make it reality. And her victory is indeed short-lived because the Yorkists return in 1460 with troops that they've gathered from their various points of exile. And in the ensuing Battle of Northampton, the Lancastrians suffer a terrible defeat and Henry, once more, is captured. But still king. But still king. Uh, in response to this, Margaret takes Prince Edward and flees to the safety of Harlock Castle. Wales, uh, where the Duke of Exeter and Henry's half-brother, Jasper Tudor, are raising troops. Cool. Meanwhile, in London, York comes back from exile in Ireland and fails in an attempt to actually have himself made King of England. Is it the Londoners again? Um, It's not the Londoners, it's the nobles. I mean, he has, I guess, at this point decided, let's stop messing around with this. The only way this is going to work is if I'm actually king. Okay, so he's, he's crossed a Rubicon here. Crossed a Rubicon, and it's an awkward moment where he basically tries to sit on the throne and everybody's just like, what are you doing? Oh, yeah. Ah, yeah, This they did that in that um, um, Royal Martin thing <laughs> on telly. Yeah. Awkward moment, um, so he fails to become king, but he does secure the act of accord in which Henry VI disinherits his son, Prince Edward, so instead names the Duke of York and his sons as his heirs. What? That's mad. No well, one... It's basically the Treaty of Troyes that we had with France, where the French king recognised Henry V as his heir instead of the time. Dauphin. So it's basically it's the same, almost certainly would have been the inspiration for it. So it's basically saying Henry can still be king, but York is regent, and York, or more likely potentially his sons, will inherit the throne instead. 
Uh, but of course, Margaret is not going to accept that. No. So she continues the fight. Uh, the Yorkists try to trick her to come to London, sending counterfeit tokens purporting to be from Henry, but she's far too canny to fall okay. for that. So instead, she boards a ship and heads off to Scotland uh, in November to form an alliance with another female regent, Mary of Gels, who is uh, regent for the infant King James III of Scotland. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, back in England, York and Salisbury travel north to uh, try and shore up their position, but on the 30th of December they are ambushed by the 3rd Duke of Somerset in the Battle of Wakefield uh, in which the Duke of York is killed along with his second son Edmund whilst the Earl of Salisbury is captured and then executed by a local mob. Who was leading that battle? So that's the 3rd Duke of Somerset, so the son of the one that was killed at St Albans. Okay. He's got his vengeance. Uh, so the heads of York, Edmund and Salisbury are cut off and displayed over Micklegate Bar on the city of York, uh, city walls of York, and York, the Duke of York's head is mockingly adorned with a paper crown. Mm. Margaret wins. Well, indeed, momentum, momentum is all with her now. So early in 1461, she rushes down to York with her troops from Scotland and uh, the Lancastrians, holds a council of war before then marching south. Uh, and we've got Prince Edward at the fore of this army. All the troops are wearing his ostrich feather badge as their livery. Mm. So she's very much giving him as the image yeah, what they're fighting for. French with Scottish troops. Yeah. Um, there are still two Yorkist armies in the field, but they aren't able to join together. So York's heir Edward defeats Jasper Tudor in the Battle of Mortimer's Cross in Herefordshire, but Margaret inflicts a crushing defeat on the Earl of Warwick in the Second Battle of St Albans. Right, okay. Warwick escapes, but Margaret rescues her husband in the process. Warwick? Hmm. Because he's just a, he's the head of that Lancastrian army, Yorkist army. Well, yeah, so we've got Warwick, who is the son of Salisbury, yeah. and Edward, who's the son of York. So the fathers are both killed in okay, Battle so Wakefield. So they are now the next generation. Okay. So Margaret rescues uh, Henry VI, who'd spent the battle apparently singing underneath the tree. Mm. Right. So he is very much yeah. no longer a uh, <laughs> practical yeah. use. Uh, at Margaret's instigation, Henry knights his son, uh, and in turn, Prince Edward then knights 30 Lancastrian soldiers. Right. So again, it's getting Edward involved in all this sort of military oh, stuff, okay. yeah, schooling yeah. him for kingship. Mm. Uh, and Margaret then makes Prince Edward determine the fate of two Lancastrian defectors who had guarded Henry during the battle. So Henry had offered uh, to promise them that, that their lives would be spared, but uh, Edward thought as traitors they should be beheaded. Oh, gosh. So he's, he, an infant has more power than him. Yes. Oh, over life and death. Yes. How old is this boy? Seven. Bloodthirsty little fellow, isn't Indeed. he? Indeed. Quite a contrast. A bit more like Henry V than Henry yeah. VI. What's his relation to him? Grandson. Grandson, Grandson okay. of Henry V. So, all that's left now is for Margaret, Henry and Edward to uh, retake London. And then they're, you know, all solid, everything's back to normal. If those Cockneys do her in here I'm going to be upset they arrive at London and find that the city gates have been closed why? well reports have reached London of the fact that Mar Margaret's northern and Scottish army has been pillaging and plundering its way through the country and consequently they are rather fearful of what will happen if she and her army enters the city easy solution get rid of the army just have just have a, a, a little guard ah, I think she needs the army and uh, really? she needs well, she needs to feed them, if anything else, because if they're pillaging their way because they need to eat food, the last thing that Margaret wants to do is like, you guys just, you know, wander off. You're sure you'll it. stay well disciplined yeah. and perfectly in control. I'll see if I can find any food for you in a few weeks. 
Yeah, she sort of sorted it out. Indeed. So despite uh, attempts at negotiation, Margaret ultimately cuts her losses and withdraws, hoping that well, they'll be omitted later once they've shown themselves to be trustworthy. There's an awful lot of power that London can wield. Indeed. Is it just because it's got walls and anyone could do this? It's got walls, very hard to break into it, and also, it, you know, it's, obviously it's the capital. Mm. Just feel like if it were some, somewhere like, um, uh, I don't know, uh, Bristol, mm. <laughs> if that had city walls and didn't let someone in, they'd just be like, right, well, that's some sort of weird crime and I'm going to raise you to the ground. But, but also, more particularly, um, there is another Yorkist army in the field, of course, because Warwick has teamed up with uh, Edward and they are heading towards London as well. So if Margaret tries to besiege the city of London yeah. with her hungry army, she's then going to have a hostile army arrive yeah. behind her. Let them be the problem to London. Well, indeed. Now, um, except for the fact that actually the Yorkists are actually quite popular in London because they've courted London's support. Oh, clever. So Margaret probably wouldn't have been too surprised or indeed alarmed to hear that London does open the gates to Edward and Warwick when they arrive a few days later. Right. She would have been alarmed, however, by the news that they declare that Henry, by teaming up with Margaret, has forfeited the crown and instead acclaim Edward as the Duke of York's heir, King Edward IV. They declare Edward as the Duke of York's heir? Because Duke of York, by the act of accord, was the heir to Henry VI as king. York is dead. Henry VI has forfeited the throne, they argue. Therefore, next in line is York's son Edward, who's Edward head of the Fourth, one of these armies. Who's head of the Yorkist army. So Edward becomes Edward IV, not, not Prince Edward. Not Prince Edward. York's Edward. Who's a boy, and this York's <laughs> Edward is a man. Yes. Okay. Uh, and indeed, untainted by his father's years of disloyalty, Edward IV is only 18, but he's extremely tall, strongly built, handsome, charismatic, and a brave soldier. So he's basically... Unlike Henry VI, everything a king is supposed to be. Oh, that might have been quite attractive then after all this. Yeah. Particularly because London thought that they were going to get pillaged by Margaret and then suddenly hot yeah. young thing comes in, saves yeah. the day and says, shall I be king instead? Who's with me? Exactly. <laughs> um, but as ever, it's not enough just to claim the throne. Edward IV would have to earn it. So on the 29th of March, 1461, we have the bloody and brutal Battle of Towton last all day and during a snowstorm but the Lancaster uh, but the Yorkists despite being outnumbered managed to turn the tide and yeah. slaughter the Lancastrian army bloodiest in British history isn't it yeah Margaret flees once more to Scotland with Henry and Prince Edward in tow whilst Edward IV is crowned King of England mm. exile Disastrous as this was Margaret is no quitter no so she offers Scotland the town of Berwick and proposes a marriage between her son, Prince Edward, and a Scottish princess to firm up their alliance. Uh, she also sends an embassy to Charles, to Charles VII of France, only to find that he had died quite recently, and his son, Louis IX, has dismissed all of the old Angevin courtiers and was not particularly inclined to offer her any assistance. Oh, God, so it's like going to... I know I <laughs> need metaphors today just to keep me focused, <laughs> but a her going to... A bank account that she'd had with loads of savings tucked away in Venezuela to find that the bank had been nationalised. Yeah. And she hasn't got any... There's no... She's got no cash in the bank there. Yeah. Okay. Despite concerns for her safety, in 1462, Margaret decides she's got to take action, uh, got to take matters into her own hands, so she heads to France to negotiate with Louis directly. Okay. So she agrees to cede Calais 
which is the last of England's French possessions, mm. and agrees a 100-year truce in return for a pledge from Louis not to ally with Henry's rebellious subjects, mm. as well as a loan of 20,000 francs and Louis agreeing to finance an invasion, though he only actually provides 800 men. Yeah, that's a good deal. Right, well, I mean, great for her. That's what she needs. Well, exactly, and the prospects are still pretty good. So there's uh, rumours of assassination plots and invasions uh, against Edward IV, uh, and much of northern England is sympathetic to the Lancastrian cause. Mm. So on arrival, she captures and garrisons the castles of Annick, Bamber, and Dunstanber. Yeah. And uh, then in 1463, alongside James III of Scotland and his mother Mary of Geld, uh, they besiege Norham Castle while much of northern England rises up in revolt. Against the York. Against Edward but he's, po- he's so, But he hasn't done anything wrong. He's, dead, he's just less popular than... Well, there's still a lot of residual support for the Lancastrians. Well, so yeah. even though they lost that battle, there's still a lot of people who are yeah. okay. Lancastrians and see Henry VI as the legitimate king. I uh, do as well, but I think by this point it'd be like, how, how much do you care? <laughs> well, indeed, that's the problem. <laughs> That is a big problem for Margaret. Yeah, yeah. Um, And unfortunately for her, things don't go well uh, in the next year. Um, The Siege of Norham is a complete failure, and the Scots just make peace with Edward IV. Yeah. Uh, Worse still, in 1464, um, there's another disastrous Lancastrian defeat in the Battle of Hexham, in which the third Duke of Somerset, who is basically her leading supporter, is killed. And after this, northern resistance collapses. Quite right. I mean, they've got... And they've got... She's got image problems. Mm-hmm. I think she's great, but French female, uh, French females are great for many things, <laughs> but uh, medieval Brit- English kings, it's not one of them. Uh, and this guy's like, if if five years earlier you'd said, right, okay, tell you what, we'll have the a dashing male English guy come along and just sort, should we just do that? Mm. She's got to go try a different game, I reckon. Uh, she has to flee with her son back to yeah. France, but she's separated from Henry, and Henry VI is captured by Edward IV in 1465. Oh, I forgot that that's still a problem. He's still about. That's no good. That can't end well. Well, the thing is that actually, because Margaret's got the son, it's oh, actually yeah. better to keep Henry VI alive, because as long yeah. as Henry's alive, that means that Edward can't, Prince Edward can't be king. Yeah. The only threat really is Margaret with Prince Edward. Mm. Okay. But the situation does look pretty hopeless now. Mm. Uh, Margaret cuts a rather pitiful figure, still pursuing alliances, but really is down on her luck, as uh, one account describes. Poor and alone, destitute of all goods and all desolate. She had neither credence nor money nor goods nor jewels to pledge. She had her son, no royal robes nor estate, and her person without adornment befitting a queen. Her body was clad in one single robe with no change of clothing. It was a thing piteous to see, truly, this high princess so cast down and laid low in such great danger, dying of hunger and hardship. Hunger? Because mm. she doesn't have any lands, she's lost everything, she's not got really anybody there, she's all, all on her own. So when she rappers. comes off the ship, like, drives off the car cruiser yes. or whatever where does she drive to what does she do is well she she's got she's got no other means to support herself or her small household she's forced to go back to live with her father like core in bar but opportunity knocks from 1464 edward the fourth is increasingly at odds with the earl of warwick yeah 
who has sort of been running the show, but Edward is asserting himself a bit more, and these two start to fall out, particularly when Edward IV secretly marries Elizabeth Woodville whilst Warwick was busy negotiating a marriage to a French princess. Yeah, of course. Of course. So after a failed coup by Warwick in 1470, Warwick is forced to flee to France, where Louis IX of France is very happy to receive him. Why? Well, because Edward IV married his sister to the Duke of Burgundy in 1468, Uh. and France and Burgundy are kind of at loggerheads. So Louis thinks Edward IV, he's obviously going to support Burgundy. Right. Warwick, he was trying to make a deal with me. Yeah. This is good. So actually... If I support Warwick against Edward, that might keep England out of the war. Okay. So, with Warwick, Louis devises a plan. Warwick's daughter will marry Prince Edward, Margaret's son. Mm -hmm. Then Warwick will lead a French army to restore Henry VI to the throne and then join France in declaring war on Burgundy. Only thing in their way is Margaret of Anjou. In the way? You'd think she'd be all for this. Yeah. This is everything she's wanted. Yeah. Except that since York's death in 1460, even more than Edward IV, Warwick has been her most bitter enemy. He's the one who has captured her husband. He's the one that's promulgated all of this propaganda about her being an adulteress and her son being legitimate. He is the number one bad guy in Team York. Mm. So she does not trust him at all. And the idea that she spent nearly 20 years keeping her son safe against everything, and then she's asked to hand him over to this man and trust that he's going to sort everything out. She doesn't trust him. No, but... No. No, I suppose not. I suppose when you look at it like real life, (laughs) I suppose you wouldn't. But uh, when you're looking at it like a a game, (laughs) then maybe the risks are worth it. But yeah, that's a real little boy, isn't it? So she rejects the plan and was said to be very hard and difficult. Uh, but Louis now really is committed to the idea, so he moves the French court to Angers, uh, ropes in Margaret's father to help persuade her, and after extensive talks, Margaret finally relents. So Prince Edward will marry Warwick's daughter, Anne Neville, but Prince Edward will not go to England with Warwick. So instead, Warwick will restore Henry VI to the throne with his own army and Jasper Tudor, and then when the country is secure, then Margaret and Prince Edward will come. Okay, good plan. Re-adaption. I've never said that word before. It's known as the re-adaption of Henry VI. It basically means restoration. Okay. So Warwick lands with 60 ships, uh, enters London unopposed, and uh, declares that he has come with the authority of the most noble Princess Margaret, Queen of England. Mm -hmm. Oh, he is a slippery fish. (laughs) Well, exactly. Um, he then releases a frankly pretty bewildered Henry VI <laughs> who is perfectly happy just being fed and uh, yeah. kept cosy in his room oh not this game again <laughs> and after a decade he is restored to the throne wow um, Edward IV has been outmaneuvered so he is forced to flee to Burgundy so finally it seems after all the trials and tribulations Margaret has triumphed yeah however she still doesn't yet come to England because she wants to be absolutely sure that everything is okay. Yeah. But in the meantime, Warwick is struggling to form a cohesive government because he doesn't have Margaret, he doesn't have Prince Edward and none of the Lancastrians trust him. Yeah, you wouldn't. So she, he needs Margaret. Mm. And what's more, Louis of France won't let Margaret and Edward leave until Warwick actually commits to the war against Burgundy. Oh, 
an impasse. Imagine how good email would be then. <laughs> so Warwick does declare war on Burgundy, but the unforeseen consequence of this is that the Duke of Burgundy, who'd previously been a very reluctant host to the exiled Edward IV, now yeah. throws his full weight behind him because this is now his means to prevent England to going war on him. So he gives Edward IV money, ships and troops mm. and sends him back to reinvade. Mm, he's investing in him. Indeed. So in March 1471, we've got Margaret and Prince Edward and Edward IV on the French coast waiting for the weather to break so that they can get back to England. They're racing. Having a race, indeed. They're held back, both held back by terrible weather. Mm. But Edward IV is the one that manages to make it first. So he returns to England on the 14th of March. Margaret finally manages to arrive in Weymouth uh, a month later. And when she arrives, she receives news that the Earl of Warwick has been defeated and killed by Edward in the Battle of Barnet on that very day. So after eight years of exile and nearly a year of planning this particular enterprise, Margaret has managed to arrive at the worst possible moment. Ah. Uh, this is so exciting. Her first reaction is just to hop back on the boat and go straight back to France. Yeah. Because she spent all this time being like, I'm not coming until it's absolutely safe. And yeah. now she's like, well, this is the least safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But her supporters argue that actually Warwick's death is a good thing because previously reluctant Lancastrians who didn't want anything to do with Warwick are now much more happy to fight for her when it's simple fighting for the Lancastrians. Yeah, yeah. No complications right, yeah. with Warwick. And what's more, we've got Jasper Tudor over in Wales with an army. So if they can make it to Wales with the forces that they've brought from France picking up Lancastrian supporters along the way, they will have a big army that will be able to really take on Edward IV. Okay. Um, after some initial feints, suggesting that she was going to march on London, Edward realises what she's doing and that she's heading for Wales. Mm. So it's now a race across the country. Edward needs to force battle with her before her army gets too large to stop. Mm. Mm. So the whole conflict is now in the balance and it's a question of whether Margaret can get to Wales first or if Edward can catch her. Oh, it's the it's um it's the uh, um Entente versus the Alliance trying racing to the uh, yeah. <laughs> to the Belgian coast. So on the thirtieth of April, Margaret stops at Bath, while Edward arrives on the same day, thirty miles north at Cirencester. So he stops, see knows where she is, and then he starts heading towards her. Mm. Um, he stops his army at the Iron Age Hill Fort at Sodbury Hill after reports of the Lancastrians are seen there, thinking that Margaret is preparing for a battle. Mm. Um, instead, she sneaks past him in the night, passing within three miles of his army. So she gets a 15-mile head start on Edward, and she reaches Gloucester, which is the first point where she can cross the River Severn and get into Wales. Mm. But Edward has sent an urgent messenger ahead, and the gate is closed. And that, So Gloucester, the person who was in charge of the gate, was a Yorkist? Mm. And it's the same situation with London. She doesn't have time to proceed to the city because Edward will catch her. Mm, yeah. So instead, she's got to make for the next crossing, which is another 30 miles to the north. Yeah. Um, but it's high to summer, it's incredibly hot and uh, tough terrain. Her army is exhausted, so they are forced to rest at Tewkesbury. Uh -oh. And then Edward pushes on and comes to within three miles of Margaret's position. And is it, are they all fresh-faced and bushy-tailed? or? They've been going pretty hard, but they are mounted. Well, I think Margaret's right. army's entirely just been running around. Oh so, too close now. There's no choice but to fight. 
So on the 4th of May, we have the Battle of Tewkesbury, which will determine the outcome of the mm. Wars of the Roses. And for the first time, Margaret's son, Prince Edward, will take part in the battle. So he is fighting the central part of the Lancastrian army. And on the other side, of course, we've got Edward IV and his two brothers, George, Duke of Clarence, Richard, mm. Duke of Gloucester. So basically, they're all there on the battlefield, and mm. it's all going to be decided. Oh, gosh. The Lancastrians are slightly larger in number, so this is why if they had been reinforced with yeah. just then they really have the massive advantage. But the Yorkists are battle-hardened. They've just beaten Warwick at Barnet. Edward IV is 29, really, at the height of his powers. And unfortunately for Margaret, it's another devastating defeat for the Lancastrians. Thousands are killed or drowned attempting to flee the battle. Others sought sanctuary in Tewkesbury Abbey, but are just dragged out and executed. Uh, Margaret's most senior commanders are killed, as well as many of the men who've been with her all through those hard years uh, of exile. But most importantly, and devastatingly of all, also amongst the dead, is her son, Prince Edward. Oh dear. Oh man. She's after, done for, right? I mean, after all this time and all this effort, she's lost everything. Oh, that was a... Oh yeah, I'm just devastated. <laughs> just processing. Final years. Margaret flees north to Worcester. Um, but unfortunately, coincidentally, that's exactly where Edward IV went as well. Oh dear. Not because he knew she was there, it just happened to be where... Oh no, what, that's awkward? So uh, William Stanley, the man who will go on to decisively change signs at the Battle of Bosworth, yeah. a few years later, captures Margaret, brings her to Edward at Coventry. So formerly her sort of capital and now yeah. scene of her submission. Uh, she declares that she is at his commandment. And she is taken back by Edward to London as part of his triumphal procession, paraded through the streets, sitting blank-faced in a chariot. Mm. Sort of like a Gaulish king being taken back to Rome. Mm. Uh, and then she is put into the Tower of London that night. So for the first time in six years, she's actually in the same building as her husband. Are you still knocking around, is he? Still knocking around. Oh, that's nice. What's he... Hello, Edward. What have you been doing? <laughs> Mostly watching Last of the Summer Wine rerun <laughs> reruns. But they don't meet. Oh. Because we said before that the reason for keeping Henry alive was that it prevented Prince Edward from actually claiming the throne himself. Mm. Prince Edward is now dead. Mm. And consequently, there is no more any value in Henry VI being alive. No. So that oh, night, as you put it, oh, yeah. he is put to sleep. Gruesome. What about her? Was she, did she, she must die as well. Well, the news makes it to France, and uh, the rumours that Edward has killed Henry VI, and he has killed Margaret of Anjou, and that he has chosen to crush the seed. What does that mean? Wipe them all out. Yeah, that's uh, sensible, I suppose, but grim. In fact, Edward actually tends to be magnanimous rather than vengeful in victory where he can be. Oh, the sad truth is that with her son and husband dead, the woman who's been the greatest threat for the last decade is suddenly a complete and utter irrelevance. She offers absolutely no threat to Edward IV whatsoever. There's not even a need to keep her locked up, so Margaret is placed into the custody of her old friend, the Duchess of Suffolk, Alice Chaucer at Wallingford, where she um, seems to have lived in relative comfort and relative liberty. With a mate. With a mate. Oh, good for her. Uh, until 1475, that is, when, uh, as part of a wider peace treaty between England and France, Louis ransoms Margaret for £10,000. Why? Well, 
in theory, it's all part of this peace deal and Louis being honourable and bringing her back home from the So enemy. he's paying 10 grand for her? Yes. Uh, before she goes, she's got to renounce all of her rights to lands and titles in England. Mm. Probably just because Edward was worried that otherwise Louis might use these against him. Yeah. So Margaret gets to go home to France. Uh, Louis grants her a very modest pension, but only on the condition that she agrees to surrender all of her rights and titles in France to him. Oh. So he's buying her back, basically, so he can nick all of her land. So she's just a wealthy private citizen now? Uh, no, she's a pretty hard-up private citizen who is given the means to survive. Oh. So she's given a little bit by Louis, but not a lot. She's not rich. Okay. He's brought her back purely to stake a claim to her Angevin lands. That he's bought for 10 grand? Mm. She's forced to live on her father's handouts, but then when he dies in 1480, she's got nobody to provide for her. Oh, that poor woman. So she's forced to write to uh, one of Louis's ministers begging for assistance. It may please him to take my poor case in the matter of what can and should belong to me into his hands to do with it according to his goodwill and pleasure and still keep me in his grace and love. So she's she's now pleading with uh, a bureaucrat just for her for means to carry on. Yeah. Uh, Louis doesn't prove to be very charitable, so instead she's forced to abandon her castle of Reculay and... Oh. Uh, relies on the charity of a former vassal of her father. I don't think we've ever had such a spectacular fall from grace that wasn't... Been killed on the battlefield. Yeah. Impoverished and uh, now uh, dying, Margaret composes her will on the 2nd of August, 1482, asking Louis to bury her with her parents at Andrew's Cathedral, um, though she admits that he might have to pay for it himself if her funds were not sufficient. Uh, Which he did do, albeit rather grudgingly. And a few weeks later, on the 25th of August, 1482, Margaret dies at the age of 52 uh, and is buried, as requested, at Angers, uh, though we do not have an account of her funeral, possibly because the account has not survived, but perhaps just as likely because nobody actually bothered to write one. Wow. I mean, that's obscurity, isn't it? So this is the Queen of England, waging war... <sighs> Making diplomacy all that's across Europe. That's newsworthy, though. That, like, surely, that's. I'm shocked to my very toes. Correspondence corner. So uh, that was the life and consortship of Margaret of Anjou. Uh, we'll review Margaret next time, but you can let us know in the meantime what you thought about her. We're planning to do a writer reply episode at the end of each uh, mini series. So if you're up to date and want to disagree or correct or chip in with any of our recent episodes on the Lancastrian Queens, uh, then do get in touch with us. We're on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And uh, also, please do send in a hashtag consort card for an episode image for Margaret of Anjou. I feel, I feel empty, Graham. Broken you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. And you can donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get access to over 100 bonus episodes at uh, www.patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. And we've got various new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Andra, Susan Parker, Gilly Whitty, Christopher Deer, Justin Showalter, Aaron Wheatley, Talos UK88, Sarah Rett, Philip Douglas... David Wallace, Iniat Jane, Marsha Davis, Ravensmith, Eric Salazar, Adrienne Tulp, Evan Long, Nelwyn Lampert, Meg Shipley, Julie, Laura Bates, 
Mike Patterson, Amanda Frost, Georgina Sandler, Laura Duggan and Michelle Ellison. Hello, arise one and all, lords and ladies of the Privy Chamber. Um, some recognisable names there. Uh, and that is all from us today. So next time we will review Margaret of Anjou and decide whether or not she has the Rex Factor. Cheerio. Cheerio.